Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a great guest today, Joanna Seip. She's a postdoctoral associate at Duke University, part of the Pratt School of Engineering. And we're going to talk about her work on microplastics and how plastic degrades, nano additives in plastics, et cetera. So Joanna, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background. What got you interested in plastic pollution and microplastics? Yeah, so I've worked about 10 years in nanoscience. And I started when I was an undergrad over at Arizona State University. And that kind of got me into interested into scientific research. And so after that, I decided to go to graduate school. And in graduate school, I was thinking about the next phase of what nanoscience would be. And talking to my advisor, Dr. Mark Wisner, we kind of settled into plastics in around 2017. So I've been working in plastics research about seven years now, I guess. That's a long time to think about it. And yeah, so that's what I was interested in. The reason I've probably stayed in it is actually, I think the differences of public interest into plastics, I think it's very motivational for scientific research to be looked at by public. I've seen that a lot in when I went to do outreach in Durham Life and Science Museum when we go to do Celebremos Las Ciencias or like Women's Engineer Day, International Science Day. There's a lot of families that were just interested in plastics research. And I think that's just helped motivate me to continue going through to help public health. The research you're working on right now, what kind of questions are you guys trying to answer through the research about plastics? Okay, yeah. So some big questions I think right now with plastics is the the smaller the plastic is, the more bioavailable it is. And I think some of your podcast invitees have talked about surface area and how that's the new question. I think the smaller there are, the more there there's a potential for bioaccumulation and lodging into tissues and stuff like that. So I think the newest questions that we're looking at is how are these smaller plastics fragmenting into much smaller plastics? How can we model how a better type of material to use so that they're not breaking down into microplastics and then therefore into nanoplastics? Yeah, when I imagine, um, you know, these small plastics, uh, what if you have a, you know, a part of it, let's say it kind of looks like, um, I don't know, not a spheroid, but like a flattened spheroid. You know, what if you have a very sharp point at one part of the microplastic and it, it creates like a, an incredibly high electrical charge because of the nature of the molecules that comprise the plastic? You know, what would that do? Would it literally poke holes and membranes? Or again, would it uh, create a part where there's an intense charge because it's a very, uh, you know, a very sharp tip to the edge of the microplastic, let's say? Does any of that happen? 
Yes, and I think that happens more with actually nanocomposites. So nanocomposites are just plastic like products that you would get in a matrix. So a matrix is a type of plastic. So let's say it's like polyethylene. Then they infuse that with different particles, like they do additive chemicals. And for this, we've looked at carbon nanotube plastics. We looked at silver nanoparticle plastics. And the carbon nanotube plastics, we did see a lot of sharp points as they break down. And with one of our collaborators in the Nicholas School, um, she looked at toxicity in fish and the sharper edges that were created from the carbon nanotube fragmentation would end up ripping and doing a lot of discomfort in the gut. And that would lead to further problems and to probably what we would see uptake of nanomaterials into the blood cells. Mm. And then also too, um, you know, like plastic bottles and clothing and et cetera, you know, there's tons of additives put into them. There's plasticizers, flame retardants, et cetera. Um, when these plastics break down, do do the additives break down and and leave the backbone of the plastic left to the you know the polymerized structure, or do they kind of wear together and wear evenly? Like, has anyone uh, figured that out? So yes and no. So there are a few studies that are happening right now on the leachability of additives into. Problem is, it's very complex. I think this is one of the things I see of microplastics in the future is that there is a lot of things that we can simplify. Unfortunately, plastics aren't that simple, um, especially as an engineer. So what we're working with a CFIC European project right now is modeling with Dr. Lee Ferguson, Dr. Mark Wisner, is modeling how additives break, how additives leach out of plastics and into, let's say, water or into different types of lung fluid to see how fast they do that compared to the plastic. So some depending on the solubility into these types of liquid media are faster than the plastic degradation and some are slower. So it depends exactly on the type of plastic you're looking at as well as the type of additive you're looking at. For example, BPA leaches a lot quicker out of um, plastics, which is why there is a huge like movement of getting rid of BPA from plastics and BPA free mm. plastics that you see everywhere. But something like TBP is a lot slower from the same exact kind of. So it depends what they're adding, what kind of mixture they're adding. Yeah, um, I guess maybe there's two ways, at least two ways to look at it. But the plastics that are around people in their homes and as they move about the world and then plastics that will be at a at a site, you know, let's say the shoreline of a coast or in a river, et cetera, where people may not be exposed nearly as often as you know, the plastics in their home and in their cars and on their clothes and in the air around them and all that stuff. Are you looking at it from any of those standpoints or it's, oh, we're investigating uh, ABC type plastic and wherever that happens to be, that's what we're investigating. Like what is your research focused on, you would say? Um, it's on exactly that. So how, I think one of the biggest mis misconceptions that there are with plastics is that plastic doesn't degrade. That's true. It takes a long time for some plastics but it's also false. It does degrade in some sense. And there's bio, um, there's bio ways that have dis disassociation, there's UV that breaks down plastics. But what I work on is mechanical breakdown of plastics. And so basically when you throw a plastic into, let's say not into, or into the trash, and then that trash goes into a landfill. And maybe that landfill, not all of it goes into landfill, but some goes into the river. Um, 
So something that I've worked on in Duke is we found a way to model exactly how much breakdown there would be for a specific type of plastic in a time frame based on the surface area. And for example, like something like a river is going to break down plastics in a sense of like 500 grams per year compared to something that is in an ocean wave gyre. So, you know, the garbage patches that would be in the sense of like five to 10 to the negative seventh per year. So like really slow degradation because you don't get the sand there. You don't get the, the movement as much. You just get it kind of stationary flow. So I think like the, it depends also in our daily lives. So something like just touching the pen every day and just writing on a plastic pen is different than if you chew it every day. If you're chewing well, what it. About, um, well, what yeah, if I, ahead. you know, I get, uh, I don't know, water. I have a certain brand of water I like in a water bottle and I'm opening it every mm -hmm. day. So I open the cap and maybe plastics are shearing off and going into the water. And then, you know, as I'm drinking the water, maybe it was left in the sun by the, you know, the truck driver that brought the cases into the store. And maybe there was UV degradation and plastics went into me that way. Or, you know, what if I drink like a soda, I drink a Coke and the pH of that's 5.3, let's say, and it's eating away at the inside of the plastics and maybe they're going into the soda. I mean, what about like these close contact type things with, with drinks, let's say, or foods? Oh, yes. So what you said is exactly right. It's um, shearing of plastic from your water bottles is going. So the more that you open and close that cap, the more microplastics you're going to drink. The longer a water has sit, sat in plastic, let's say you just leave it in your car in the heat, let's say in an Arizona summer, or you leave it in the cold, um, you're going to get a different amount of plastics based on temperature, on pH, like you said. So like if you use a plastic water bottle and you have to use it, I would just keep the cap off and just drink it. <laughs> I wouldn't open and close the cap as much. But yes, you're going to get more microplastics based on each scenario especially the more that you degrade or hit against it, you will ingest more. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, or like, you know, when I wash my clothes and I dry them, you know, I get a ton of lint in the, you know, the catcher and the dryer, but, um, you know, how many fibers are coming off the clothes I wear? You know, if I wear wool versus cotton versus polyester, you know, what, uh, am I breathing in fibers from the clothing that are abrading? You know, like what are the main sources that uh, an individual just living and running around, you know, would uh, be exposed to microplastics, let's say? Oh, yes. So washing your clothes is a big source of microplastics. Um, like you said, as it depends on the type of fabric that you're washing. Of course, like polyester or nylon has more microplastics than something that's cotton. Um, but also the, you know, the little pods that people put in the, their um, 
dishwasher dishwashers also. I mean, the, the pods that go in dishwashers and in the laundry. Um, they found that some of the a recent study was found that the outer lining that's plastic doesn't actually truly degrade all the way. Um, so you're creating more microplastics and something that could just be a liquid, if that makes sense there. Um, again, and your, I think one that the FDA is still looking at very intently is the plastics in your seafood. They're really interested in how much is being ingested by fish and they still are. And I think the other, but I think in foods, what we're getting more than actually plastic and seafood is the stuff that's coming off of our clothing and our, that's in our air or dust, right? As it falls into our food, we're eating um, our food. And it, apparently I, I read something that you eat about a credit card of plastic a day, a week. <laughs> um, yeah, really? yeah. So if you look at your credit card, that's about what you're eating for a week. And in 70 years, so they, they put an Oh, I forget the name of this study, but um, in 70 years, they you eat about a trash can worth of plastic in your life. Um, um, how much instead actually... Of, uh, instead of cutting up your credit cards, you're eating your credit cards. Yep. <laughs> yep, exactly. And so the problem is, is like, how are these plastics that you're eating? Are they breaking down as you're eating them or in your body? I think that's what's kind of scary because those are the ones that they've found translocated in your blood and now is maybe a precursor for Alzheimer's. And I think those are what's very scary as well as the additives that come out is like, how are these affecting our, are they endocrine disruptors? What are, what's coming out in, in our body is what actually are we accumulating and what are we not accumulating is the biggest question. So you said uh, people eat about a credit card's worth of plastics a week. So has anyone done a study to look at the major contributors to that for an average person? I know everyone's different. I know everything's different, but you know, is there any studies that have been done, like an anthropological study where again, someone hangs out with someone and is uh, looking at all the potential sources of microplastics and documenting them and testing as best they can and establishing, you know, what's the predominance of what they're consuming and how is it breathed in, is it eaten, you know, et cetera. No, but I would love to do something like that. I haven't seen anything like that in the literature. I think it would be great to follow different income sources as well as um, people who maybe reuse more plastic, see the difference of plastic ingestion at different um, points, as well as the water sources they drink from. That would be interesting. But yeah, no, there hasn't been anything that I've seen in the literature that has done that. Hmm. Okay. Um, so what, what are you guys studying and what are other, what are other people studying about the interaction of plastics inside of someone? Like, is anyone, I don't know, uh, taking a urine sample for someone from someone like every day over a whole month to see what's in their urine, let's say if it's excreted that way and maybe try to characterize what is leaving the body and then maybe doing a blood tests every day to see what is still being maintained in the body over a month's uh, time. I haven't seen, I know I haven't read in that cause it's not my, I don't look at, toxicology of that but however we have looked at it with um with fish in the nanocomposite studies and most of it is excreted excreted in their in their poop however there is like i told you the breakdown in the gut where some just get kind of like stuck there and then some of the additives that come out or nanocomposites come out and can go in the bloodstream how how much and what fraction that is we don't really know we just saw that it's it's there does anyone know if uh, microplastics are excreted in urine or sweat? Not that I know. 
of. Okay. And by the way, I've interviewed uh, almost 60 different microplastic scientists. Almost no one, I mean, no one knows. I know it's yeah. in your field. So it's okay if you don't know, because so far I haven't found anyone that does know. <laughs> A lot of these I questions are uh, difficult. I think it would be great to find out, but yeah. How long do they stay in the human body is also a question, right? Like how long do they actually stay in there is probably more important than how much we eat, mm. right? And if they stay in the gut, let's say, or the stomach or the intestines mm -hmm. or the, you know, I would, I would think maybe over time they would build up in the colon or the intestines, you know, the ones that can't get through. And if you're continually being exposed to new plastics and ingesting them, the fraction that doesn't get passed out maybe grows over time and causes, you know, I don't know, a whole host of problems. I don't know. Yeah. And that's why I think it's also like important to see the fragmentation in these different types of fluids, which is kind of what we're working on environmentally and biologically um, fluids of just not only the breakdown, but the additive leaching. I think that will help a lot to answer some of these questions that we have, especially when I feel like a lot of people think nano and additive are bad. I think that's another misconception that there is, is like, oh, all the additives or all the nano stuff that you add into plastics are bad, make them more toxic. I think it's true and it's not true. Um, again, as most of the answers are yes and no, or it depends, right? And some of the nano that composites we've seen actually break down less once they're being weathered or broken down in UV and rain and stuff like that it actually protects it from breaking down and creating microplastics or it creates a little film to help reduce this. And I think that's kind of the future of not where exactly how we can prevent them to be made and prevent them to accumulate more as they break down. Cause once they break down, it's a lot harder to clean them up. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, you know, at, at one point I would have thought plastics maybe should be made so that they break down quickly so they don't persist in the environment. But then if, uh, you know, something plastic breaks down and makes billions and trillions of microplastics, that's far worse. So maybe you don't want it yeah. to break down and you want it to stay macro. It's hard to figure yeah, out. Yeah, you do. do. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that's that really s surprised me working in this field is we can't really predict science <laughs> You for stuff that we thought was self-explanatory. Like for me, I was like, oh, yeah, you want it to break down exactly like how you thought or like you want like. If you want, if you have a stronger plastic, it's definitely going to break down less, right? And that's how a lot of the material science and people that are creating products, they're like, we want a stronger plastic so that it lasts longer, right? It's more durable if it's stronger. And um, my recent study that correlated a lot of these material properties to how polymers break down, can we predict how they break down for environmental and human um, health st standards? And the answer was no. Um, something that was stronger was not the one that broke down the least. And that was that was shocking to me. I thought since that was even shocking to one of my collaborators that was a material scientist. He was like, wait, are you are you sure about this? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we did a lot of studies on this. And it was in published in from bottle to microplastics 2022. And yeah, we found that the strongest plastic we looked at was polycarbonate, which is what's used in your tech and glasses. And that broke down around in the middle. And we thought that would hardly break down at all. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, uh, you know, polycarbonate versus uh, polystyrene versus, uh, you know, these other common plastics. 
is there at least a chart of how fast they break down or it's totally dependent upon situation and exposure to UV, mechanical stress, et cetera? Um, so I'm trying to make a chart. We're trying to make a chart for that, but there isn't, it's really dependent on experimental values. So I'm trying to make a kind of chart for weathered and unweathered um, plastics. And I have a range of stuff from TPU, which is like a pliable rubber plastic, to PLA that's biodegradable, and nylon that's like a polyester, like a, a something that you would wear, um, a fibrous plastic, polycarbonate, and then polyethylene. Um, and the polyethylene we picked was um, terephthalate glycol additives, which means that terephthalate and glycol is what makes it flexible and see-through. So that's what's used in our um, a lot of food packaging. And then also a high impact polystyrene because polystyrene is used in all the throwaway food packages, um, the foams, but we looked at a high impact to try to see if like, this is the one that would be the strongest of all the polystyrenes, right? Um, surprisingly, the the two single use plastics for, for the polyethylene and the polystyrene, those broke down by far the most, which is a good and a bad thing <laughs> again. It's a good thing um, because a lot of, I think, government um, regulatory agencies are trying to reduce our single-use plastics, so that's a good news. It's also a bad thing because they still are single-use plastics, so a lot of those are getting disposed of mostly in the environment. Like, a lot of those are the things you see at the side of the road or you see in the be on the beach just thrown away into the trash because people don't really recycle, that kind of thing. And how much do the additives, the plasticizers, the flame retardants, et cetera, modify the way and the speed and how, you know, these, these backbones break down these polymerized uh, molecules? Do they affect them a lot? Do they change their properties dramatically? So from what we found so far with na like nanocomposite additives, it's, they don't affect them at all, which is something, again, surprising. All the hypotheses I looked at during my dissertation were not supported by the science. So we thought like, okay, carbon nanotubes are really strong. It's gonna make it break down less, right? They all broke down around the same amount and it was all broke, it was all modeled by the type of matrix it was in. So the polyethylene drove the broke down, breakdown more than the additives that were in it. But why did the, how could the polyethylene drive the breakdown, for instance? Like what was the mechanism by which that happened, you think? Uh, so, that's again something we've been looking at so we thought it was i thought it was material properties so like the strength or the elasticity from the young's modulus or hardness in the past a lot of people just use hardness tests um, because that's a simple needle poking into the sample and you can get that relatively quickly and try to um, see if that was correlated however none of those matched how they broke down so in my opinion right now it's maybe more into the shear stress, into the interface. So what kind of interface are you matching up with the polymer? So is it your skin that's touching it? And that something, when you touch like a plastic product, um, the kind of friction that you feel in between your skin and the product, that's, there's gonna be a value that you can use for that, inter or that modeling and it's called the friction factor. Um, the sh and so that's what I think would be better to look at. So I wanted to look into that in the future. And one of my collaborators was like, do you have another PhD like T of time? <laughs> that's an entire PhD or like six years of work. And so I think that's where it's going to go into the future is trying to model better the interface 
that's happening in that breakdown in the interface? Well, if I think of um, you know polymers again as long chains of material, maybe literally um, until the polymer substantially breaks down, the additives and everything. I know they're intermixed amidst the polymer chains, but maybe they're just literally shielded from the outside world. You know, the inner ones. And when the plastic breaks down and opens up channels through it, maybe now all of a sudden they're you know they're they're surface facing. Maybe now they could be abraded away or worn down in other ways. Yeah, so I've I've got some great images. Exactly what you said is especially with plastics at the surface is when they're broken down. So once I I braid them, I can take surface images and see exactly how much is taken off on the surface and exposes the next layer. So I think that it also shields us from a little bit of microplastics because some of the microplastics just kind of get embedded into the back. Like instead of being released, some of them just go back under the surface, like layer peeling, you know. So I feel like the easier it is to flake off a plastic, probably the more that we're getting exposed to those types of microplastics in different shapes. Like you said, the shape is also very important on exposure. Yeah, it's a really tough puzzle and everything is so situation dependent that I know I just wonder if um, the science of microplastics or plastic foundation is going to have to just directionally say, hey, these are the uh, seemingly to be the worst offenders. So we should focus on those things. And, you know, there's no way we'll ever be able to get rid of everything. But to kind of 80, 20, it, look at, you know, the largest contributors to degradation of human health, we can maybe work on those and try to reduce the use of those plastics, let's say. I don't know. It's just a very yes. difficult puzzle, it sounds like, an impossible puzzle. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that's why I really enjoyed my study of like what breaks down more. Can we predict how it breaks down to kind of focus on those? And I think it kind of goes along with what we were thinking is first kind of banning plastics doesn't exactly solve the problem. It helps the problem maybe, but it's never going to solve it because that means we still have microplastics out in the environment, right? From plastics all in the, the past. And it's also, we have to kind of prevent them from being made, but also deal with the ones we have, right? That we already have and have to work on. But you're right, it's complex. So maybe start with the single use plastics. That's what I would, I would kind of say with, and I think a lot of people are like doing regulations on those. New York has done those as well as California and just kind of starting from there and then going into the ones that maybe we can look into the additives that release. That's what I'm looking at and finding the next BPA, right? The next one that's endocrine disruptors, those phthalates that are carcinogenic. And as you break them down, how much more surface area are you getting to get more leaching from that, right? And exposure from that. Yeah, and also, too, um, I know I, I shouldn't just picture only plastic bottles, but for some reason, it's what always pops in my head. Um, some plastics, do they just, they don't break down into medium and then smaller size pieces, but they just, you know, you have like a monolithic macroplastic, and then I guess microplastics are coming off the edges of it, especially, let's say, if it's blown open. But um, are there certain plastics that tend to break down sequentially, you know, meaning like you have a big piece of plastic, and then you get medium size and then small and smaller and smaller and smaller to microplastics. And other ones, you still have the macroplastic and it doesn't really break down much into small pieces, but you continually are, you know, uh, giving off microplastics from the edges, let's say the, the torn edges. It's the breaking down. I don't know which one, if there's certain kinds of plastics for it to break down one way or another. 
Uh, Does that make sense? So or yes. is it confusing? I said? No, I think you're asking, are they breaking down in different ways that we can characterize what plastic it is based on the way they break down? Is that yeah, like let's say we picture, um, I don't know, two plastic bottles. One, you know, mm -hmm. they both have a hole blown open in them. And then we, we fast forward, I don't know, uh, 10 years. And one of the, the, you know, one of them, it's still, you got a plastic bottle there with a hole in it, but it's leached, you know, quadrillions of microplastics off its, off its exposed edges. So it still looks like a bottle, just like a weathered bottle. And then the other mm -hmm. one would be a plastic bottle that over time it's broken down into medium sized pieces and then small pieces and then tiny pieces and then microplastics, you know, like, so you see a whole size distribution of, of pieces of the bottle. Like which model do mm -hmm. you think is more accurate and how certain plastics break down? Okay, I got it. I think the best model is knowing where you're going to drop it off. <laughs> so like, is it being dropped off at the ocean shore? Is it gonna be dropped off at a river? Is it gonna have some UV photolysis before it's thrown away? I think breakdown models are more dependent on exactly what kind of stress it's going to undergo. So is it gonna be thrown around for a little bit or is it just going to sit in the ocean gyres for a while, you know, and just hang out there? That one in the gyres is probably the slower breakdown. It's going to be just kind of taking off layer by layer slowly. And that's why it takes about 450 years-ish to break down an entire bottle, right? Cause it's little by little and you still see that some of the plastic come back years later in the news, right? Like, oh, this is so old. Like the message in the bottles, those were glass though. <laughs> and then I think we're also seeing breakdown into chunks, like you're saying, the big breakdown into chunks. But I think that's happening more in rivers or the ocean shore where you're getting maybe like animals chewing on them, right? And getting smaller and getting maybe big particle chunks. And then you have more exposure at um, fragments that weren't supposed to be exposed, right? And then those are going to break down slower, faster than the ones in the gyre, if that is what you're asking. Well, does anyone have a lab set up? Let's say, again, I'm, I'm you know, just looking at uh, plastic bottles and I have like a tank mm -hmm. with salt water and some sand and wave action in it. And I have like a UV yeah. lamp above it. So in one mm -hmm. tank, you know, I've got all that stuff from the bottles being sloshed about and, you know, the sand's hitting it and all that. The other one, you know, it's still in water. Let's say there's no sand, no waves. It's just kind of gently bobbing there and sitting there under the UV. And I compare the degradation profiles and what's released into the water and what it looks like and how long it takes. Is anyone doing mm -hmm. something like that to characterize this? Yeah, so no, I, I think yes and no, <laughs> again. So yes, people are doing that. But I think that because it's so different between each lab, you can't really say like, oh, it was at this RPM and this amount of sand, but it's very hard to reproduce those studies. So what we did in our lab is that I helped design um, a machine of abrasion breakdown, a mechanical breakdown, and that's used as a standard right now over at the National Institute of uh, NIST. Um, of, and so what we're, we do is we just set um, breakdown at different power inputs and those power inputs can be extrapolated to the uses that I was talking to you about, like maybe a, a chewing or a baby chewing or like sanding, right? That you would do in your home or the 3D printers are used a lot of sanding in between to get rid of um, plastic. And also like higher 
power inputs like electrical sanders or like the the ocean shore but um right now we don't do them in water um we just do them in air but we're able to see the breakdown at low versus high powers and i've once you get to higher powders it feels um some plastics such as the polystyrene i was telling you it looks like a, a snow globe <laughs> there's plastic powders everywhere but something like tpu at the high power is giving you flaking of longer um, strings and not really as much breakdown. So that's what we do is we use that power input, which is then correlatable to these breakdowns that you're asking about. However, um, the ones that are in maybe a simulated ocean and mesocosm kind of setup, they have done some of those, but I think they're very hard to repeat and show that they happen as well in the environment. So what would you do, like, if uh, Congress called you up and, and had you in and they said, Joanna, as a scientist, what do we do about this this problem of plastic contamination affecting people? Like, what do, you, what do you recommend that we do now to try to fix this? What could we do, even though we can't fix it entirely? I think we need to hold, um, again, we need to hold industry responsible for some of the things that they're creating and making. And I think the way that we do that is we are we're going to fund more research that is not done is done by a third party. It's not done by the industry themselves to prove their product. And this is not only in polymers, right? This is in other materials that are being used and exposed to our public that aren't exactly safe when they break down or being actually used. I mean, the CPSC catches um, some of these that aren't safe, but we haven't done actual break i think that if we show the breakdown of these plastic products and the additive leaching of some of these products i think it'd be a lot the public would even stop buying them right it's like who's the major stakeholder here is it the government is it the industry manufacturers is it the consumers and in fact it's all three working together but in, for all three to work together there needs to be clear communication right and i think there needs to be that's what we have to do as researchers is we have to be not influenced by all three of those and to show that yes we are consumers also but we're trying to protect the consumers that the same way that the government's going to try to enact policy for them if that makes sense okay <laughs> i feel yeah, like there needs sense. to be a connection on that so i guess you know one of the last questions is uh, what i don't know in the next five maybe ten years what do you think is possible in terms of understanding you know microplastics and the dynamics of them What's going to take a long time, you think? So, again, I think it's enact what you, exactly what you said, enacting policy on what plastic particles can be in our water and what can't be. And especially when we're, like, those are our direct um, inputs where they said about, we get about nine fibers from just tap water, which the United States has the dirtiest tap water in all the world, by the way, for plastics. So I think solving that question first, I think... Um, California has already enacted some of that microplastics in water um, regulations, and they're probably, I think they're the first in like the world to do that. I mm. think we need to continue that to try to be like there's plastic safety in all the water we're drinking, enact regulations on the plastic drinking water that we're, we're buying, right? The how much microplastics can be exposed in the, the water that you buy. and. I think what we're going to see in the next few years in terms of microplastics research is, again, how can we prevent them from being made, maybe prevent their breakdown more and then have a more 
efficient recycling system because recycling isn't the end all be all. It's about like 2% is actually recycled, right? Correctly. But I think if we have some kind of closed circle chain that's effective and working together with government to do that, I think it would help a lot on the issues that we're seeing emerge right now. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go? Oh, well, you can find out more about my work on my website, which is um, joannasype.com. And oh, how do you spell that? Oh, it's J O A N A. Okay. And then S I P E.com. Okay. So to make sure there's one N. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It's okay. One well, N. well, very good, Joanna. Thanks for coming on and being willing to speculate on, you know, impossible questions and unknown answers. So I really appreciate you being here and thank you. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.